So this morning we continue on with this short Christmas series um, around, the, around Christmas, around Jesus and the fact that he's come. This morning, the, the emphasis on the fact that we are still praising. And I was thinking about it this week because I had this provoking uh, thought or provoking interaction uh, this week. Been thinking about it some. Uh, I should think about it almost every year, but this this week especially. Uh, on Friday, uh, I had to drop our car off for an oil change at, at Balfour Auto Body. Uh, they do a great job, and it was interesting because I was talking with them, and as I was picking up the car uh, to one of the mechanics, I said, you know, I "said Have a merry Christmas," and and I know that it's days after the 25th, but I meant it. Have a merry Christmas, in terms of the season of Christmas. Because the church, we celebrate Christmas beginning on the 25th until January 6th, the 12 days of Christmas. That's where that comes from. So I said, Merry Christmas. And he looked at me, kind of looked, kind of puzzled. And he said, uh, yeah, Merry Christmas. Well, we should probably be saying Happy New Year, right? And I said, yeah, Happy New Year, that too. And I was thinking about it this morning, how we live as a church, while the rest of our culture has already moved on to Boxing Day sales and year-end clearances and New Year's Day parties, that as the church, we get to remain here in this place with Jesus, the newborn Savior, God who took on flesh to live among us. We continue to live in this time, to soak it up, to savor it. That for us, this child of, uh, from the kingdom of, of David has come, and it's good news of great joy that's for all people. And so we continue to celebrate that. I've been talking about Christmas with people this last week, about this very notion that as Christians we continue to celebrate. And I was thinking about it, reflecting on it some as I was writing my sermon this week about how different it was from when I was a kid. When I was a kid, my family didn't go to church much, hardly ever at all, not even on Christmas. And so I was totally wrapped up in the culture's way of celebrating Christmas. <clears throat> and that... Uh, excitement would build. And I grew up in the U.S., so from Thanksgiving, we in the U.S. we have it at a funny time, late in November, and uh, and so we'd begin. So like right around the end of November, everything started ramping up for Christmas, and excitement would build. We'd gather, we'd go out and get a tree, and then we'd decorate it, and then over the next few weeks, presents, lots of presents would just slowly grow underneath it. I could feel my joy uh, just growing. Then we started having Christmas pageants and programs and parties and holidays and, and food and treats and Christmas baking. And then Christmas Eve, all of it would start to, to uh, crescendo at Christmas Eve. And we'd have this great dinner. My dad owned a grocery store, a small grocery store in Spokane. And so um, he would bring uh, home a bunch of seafood and we'd have a seafood dinner and my grandfather would come and then it was so good, actually, that my aunt and uncle had, had Christmas Eve at her family's. They would often come afterward to eat some of the seafood at our house after their party. So it was a great time. And then um, just my excitement would grow and grow. And, um, and then that night, about the only thing that helped me get to sleep was the realization that the sooner I went to sleep, the sooner I could get up and run out into the living room and open presents. <clears throat> so... Christmas Eve is about the pinnacle, and then Christmas morning, just this euphoria of gifts. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was like most kids. There's a few who are different, but it was all about me. I mean, all the stuff that I got. And, 
You know, it's interesting because I remember this vividly because it happened year after year, is that I would get gifts and we'd tear into them, open them and do all that. And then my dad would go to work at the store um, because he'd work on Christmas Day so his, many of his employees wouldn't have to. And in my euphoria that had reached this pinnacle had already started to drop. <laughs> Maybe within an hour or two. Sort of like the, the um, withdrawals of all the excitement started to, to set in. And then by that afternoon, we'd go to my grandma's house, which... Uh, for me, at very least, it was not a very fun place. I mean, there's, there was nothing wrong with it. It was just kind of boring. Uh, my, my family, they would all talk and do all that stuff, and I would bring a couple choice toys that I had just gotten and do the best I could to keep myself uh, occupied with those. But even on that, even by that afternoon, I would start counting down the days till the next Christmas, 364, baby, just trying to make it through. Um, but as I've gotten older... My view of Christmas, thank God, has changed, um, largely because of my faith and because of our faith in Jesus. You know, while much of our culture around us starts celebrating in, no- in November, sometimes even earlier, um, if you work at a department store, it can seem like they start in August now, um, that the season of December, when it really starts to ramp up, I feel this this competing sense of longing in the season of Advent, the season when we look forward to Christ's coming, this longing as we look at the world around us and how broken things are, and we pray and we desire for Christ to come again. And so the season of Advent, for me, it's kind of, I feel like I'm kind of walking in two worlds. Like I'm doing my best not to be the killjoy, not to be like seem like Eeyore going to these parties, but there's a sense in me, the thing, you know, as much as this is fun to celebrate, I sure wish Jesus was here. I wish he would fix this place. And then on Christmas Day, it kind of seems like everything lines up. But for me, Christmas Day has totally changed now. It's um, because we have all of these things happening, especially the week before, right up to Christmas Eve, the Christmas Eve service here. Lots of, uh, for me, lots of desire wanting to, to, to bless our community and to encourage them in faith. Christmas Day for me is now this day of relief just when everything quiets down. I mean, my kids still open gifts. We exchange gifts with each other, but I feel like everything is finished. And it's just this day where I get to just celebrate the fact that God has risen. I get to celebrate the fact that Jesus came. And, and it's become this, this great day for me. But as I think about it more, about celebrating the 12 days of Christmas with the rest of the church, that rather than just packing everything away and moving on to the next holiday, but we take this moment as a church to celebrate the fact that Jesus has come. I was thinking about this too in, in terms of the sermon or the series that we've been working through on First Peter. We'll get back to that in a couple weeks. Um, actually, after next week we will. But leading up to this short series on Christmas, uh, we were talking about living our witness as Peter was encouraging the church to live in a way that proclaimed the gospel. And I started thinking about that in terms of Christmas and how Christ took on flesh to live among us and becomes our model for the way that we live among our community. And so I'm wondering if, if any of you have kind of had similar thoughts about Christmas, this afterglow, if you too are celebrating or continuing to celebrate that Jesus has come. And while the rest of our culture has moved on, we remain at the manger with the child. 
delighting in the reality that this is salvation for everyone, for all of us, regardless of our social status, our economic status. Christ is for everyone. Or maybe this uh, idea of Christmas season seems new to you. I was talking with one person as I came in this morning, and they're like, oh, 12 days of Christmas. Not, okay, I kind of wondered where that came from. Um, but this idea that Christmas actually for the church doesn't begin in, in December, on December 1st. It actually begins December 21st, the first day of Christmas. And so maybe you're wondering, okay, Jason, I, I hear what you're saying about how Christmas goes on, but how do we, how do we savor that moment? You know, how do we capture that? How do we not just get sucked into what our culture does and start thinking about uh, the next year-end clearance and all this pressure to go buy something because you'll never see prices like this again or uh, have this huge, to have all this fun on New Year's Eve. just seems like all this pressure to do these things. But I was thinking about it, how actually the Bible has this rich collection of Christmas stories for us, whether it's angels proclaiming good news to shepherds, magi bringing gift, gifts, or like we'll hear this morning, whether it's prophets and prophetesses proclaiming good news, praising God because they hold the, the baby Jesus. So let me show you what I'm talking about. So for those of you who were here on Christmas Eve, we worked through um, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 to 20. I retold that story. Um, story about how uh, David... So Caesar Augustus in those days, he issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And so uh, David, I'm sorry, not David, um, Joseph, who is from the house of David, had to take his whole family from the northern part of Israel and Nazareth down to Jerusalem to Bethlehem because he belonged to the house of David, to the line of King David. And while they were there, Jesus was born. And when Jesus was born, the angels began uh, they appeared to shepherds out in their fields, these outcasts, these grubby, kind of roughneck guys who most of the culture had written off. The angels appeared to them first and say, the Savior has been born to you. You need to go find this child. And so this is a story that I shared with, um, with this whole group, with this whole room filled with people from our community and many of you. And I was realizing this week, but that actually is only part of the story. I think as I was reading this week, realizing that Luke actually means all of chapter 2 to kind of be read together. And I'll show you in a minute, but, but just to give you a hint is that, one, it begins, it starts in Nazareth with going with Jesus' family, going to Bethlehem. And it ends with Jesus' family starting in Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and going back to Nazareth at the end of chapter 2. And so it kind of makes a bookend to the whole group of stories. So... Uh, but I think the point that Luke is trying to make here is that this story, this good news, is meant for all people. Whether you're a grubby shepherd out in the field, or if you're a prophet or a faithful guy who lives, seems to live at the temple, uh, the center of the Jewish world, this good news is for you. And it completes this whole picture of Jesus' birth, that he is the Savior for all of us. So let's dig into this. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Um, First thing I wanted to show you guys is that as you read this passage here, uh, on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, his na- he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. Uh, the thing here that I was realizing this week is how faithful Jesus' parents are. That they do everything right by the customs and the laws of, the Jew- of Judaism, uh, by the laws of the people of their day. 
And so he's circumcised on the eighth day, which was the custom. And he's also named uh, just as the angel had instructed them, just as the angel had instructed Mary and then also Joseph, as we read in Matthew's gospel. His name will be Jesus, which we've talked about this some, but Jesus is actually uh, the English version of Yesu. Yesu is the Greek version of Yeshua. Yeshua means, uh, to translate it literally means God saves or God is my salvation. So Jesus' name actually means God's salvation. And so um, they did this. They took him to the temple to have him circumcised, to present him to God. And then it says, when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. And so uh, this is actually, uh, it, was, it was a law of the Lord, the, the one that the people of Judaism, the, people, the Jewish people, um, they observed. So they would, the firstborn was always dedicated to God. And that actually comes from Exodus uh, 13.2. It says, Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether man or an animal. And so this idea that the firstborn belonged to God, the choice, the best, God desires the best from us. And so this was, the, this was the thing that God had taught them. And so, you know, we see that they're basically doing, following all these laws, all these customs that were laid out uh, for Israel. And the thing I wanted to point out to you guys um, this morning especially is if you look on your bulletin, um, if you were to be um, underlining all the places where it says they followed God's law, it would be first would be here at verse 22, according to the law of Moses. Then at 23, it says, um, as it is written in the law of the Lord. At verse 27, uh, as the law required, or the custom of the law required. And then also, too, at verse 39, it says they'd done everything required in the law of the Lord. Four places in this short little passage where it talks about Jesus' family doing everything just as God had directed them to do. Okay, so uh, if you're into outlining, go ahead and take them home and do that. But... um, the point I want to make is that this family is faithful and they are following God's law. The next one is here. So we'll keep moving on here. The next part says, uh, Simeon now shows up. So now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. So we have this extreme, these extreme groups. As I mentioned already before, uh, we have shepherds out in their field, the ones that everybody had written off. They were the grubby guys, the guys that lived most of their lives by themselves, watching the sheep out in rural pastures. And now you have uh, Simeon. This guy is at the center of the Jewish world. He's at the center of the temple. Uh, and he has come here to see Jesus, or has uh, come at the same time, led by the Holy Spirit. I want to make just a couple things here. So everybody assumed that the shepherds, um, everybody assumed that, that they were on the outside. These guys, they, they don't have much hope. You know, in terms of being a part of God's people or a part of God's salvation, they're just not, they're probably not going to make it. That's sort of the view of ancient Israel. And then you have Simeon here who is described as being righteous and devout it says also, too, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. So you have this really faithful guy, too. 
And it's interesting how Luke is making these, these two guys or these two groups, the shepherds and Simeon, the two ends of the spectrum. And they're both praising God for Jesus. And then he says this interesting thing. He says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And I was actually reading in, actually in the commentary this week, at Daryl Bach, professor at uh, Dallas, I think, still Dallas Theological Seminary. And he was making this great point that the consolation of Israel is not just a generic comfort for Israel, but actually began uh, by Jesus' day had a special meaning to it, had a specific meaning. Because if you read through Isaiah, especially Isaiah 40 through 66, those, those last chapters of Isaiah, there's five places where it talks about the consolation of Israel. And it's interesting because the word underneath here is parakaleo, which you don't need to worry, but it's the same word used in these five places. Let me just show you a couple of them. The first one here is uh, from Isaiah 40, verse 1. This is familiar for a lot of us. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. It's a way of saying consolation, consolation, my people. Then here at Isaiah 49, 13, it says, Shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Then here's Isaiah 51.3. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. See, in the ancient world, in Jesus' time, consolation had become more of, a, of an expectation of restoration that Israel, God would restore Israel to its greatness. And so Simeon here, when he says that he would see the Lord's consolation, that's what he's talking about, that God would restore Israel. Then Simeon, he gets to hold the baby. He said, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was custom of the law, there's again following the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So he gets to hold salvation in his arms. And it's interesting because Luke makes this point throughout the gospel that even when Jesus is born, he is God's salvation. And a lot of times we don't think about, we kind of don't associate Jesus with salvation until he's on the cross. But in Luke's gospel, he's showing us that even when Jesus was born, he was God's salvation for all of humanity. And it's interesting because I, as I read how Simeon, like how he speaks here, you can hear the relief in his voice. It's actually right here. It says, uh, now dismiss your servant in peace. I can almost hear him holding the child, praising God, and then just, thank you, God because he had been waiting so long. He had been waiting so long to see God's salvation. And God had promised him that before he died, he would see it. And so he's holding this child, not only realizing that salvation has come, but that God has fulfilled his promise to him. And he's holding the child Jesus in his arms. And then he begins speaking about what this child will mean a light of revelation to the Gentiles, one who would reveal God to the rest of the nations around Israel. Israel, they had a relationship with God. Not always perfect. A lot of times, and as Jesus would point out throughout the rest of his ministry, there were a lot of things that they misunderstood. 
But the nations around them did not recognize God, or at least very well. And Simeon is saying that Jesus would reveal God to them. Not only that, he would do it for the glory of the people of Israel, of God's people, that they would be glorified, that they would be honored in it. So you can imagine you take your child to uh, the temple or to uh, the church to have them circumcised or to present them to the Lord, and then this guy who begins speaking to you and saying all these things, I think it's pretty understandable that Mary and Joseph, they marvel. And so it says here, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Not exactly the encouraging word that you expect to hear when someone takes a hold of your child, but still important and important for us to hear that Jesus is this child who would not only divide Israel, but has divided the whole world between those who recognize who he is, this son of God, this salvation who has come in the flesh, and those who hear it and just, just don't see it. That the whole world has been divided in two. And talks here, Simeon talks about that people's heart, their true heart would be revealed. And as you read through Luke's gospel, you see those who thought that they were following God above everybody else. You see Jesus speak to them, especially people like Pharisees, and showing them that they, they had missed it. For all the things that they did, all the laws that they thought that they kept so well, they had missed God and his visitation. They had missed his Savior that had come. But here's the interesting thing. It's interesting what he says to Mary. Um, oh, sorry. Um, what he says to Mary here, he says, a sword will pierce your own soul too. And it's interesting, you can see it in, my, uh, in the commentary. There was like nine different theories of what Simeon meant by this. So when you know there's that many theories, uh, it's just a signal one that I'm not sure if we ever get quite to the bottom of this. But at very least, we know that Mary was troubled by the ministry of Jesus. When he was ministering, she and her other and Jesus' brothers would come and try and kind of get a hold of him. We know those stories in the Gospels. Not only that, but the stories of her at the cross, watching her son be crucified and how painful that was for her. But it's interesting here because he says the sword will pierce your own soul. Now, we just have this word for sword, but it's actually in Greek, it's romphea, uh, and it's this type of sword. It's this sword is about this big. It's huge. And you can see it's a two-handed sword would pierce your own heart. So this is not like some tiny little sword. This is a giant, double-edged, piercing sword. And Simeon says, this is the type of sword that will pierce your heart, Mary. And so we realize that Jesus is this cornerstone. He is a stone that causes many to stumble, but he's also the stone that God will use as the foundation of his church, his people. Jesus is the first stone Upon, the rest, upon which the rest of us are built. So, um, the story continues then. So, we hear this part about Joseph and Mary marveling. And then it comes in, and then uh, Luke reports this to us. He says, There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband 70, or sorry, seven years after her marriage, then was widowed until she was 84. 
So most of her life, she lived as a widow, which in the ancient world uh, usually meant poverty, uh, where they, um, widows oftentimes had to rely on the generosity of others to survive, especially if they didn't have a son or a son-in-law to take care of them in the ancient world. And it's interesting here because um, Anna, uh, in Greek, uh, it's the same word for Hannah, as in 1 Samuel, the mother of Samuel and her faithfulness in devoting her son Samuel to the Lord. And so there's all these points of connections uh, that happen in this story. But I think it's an interesting thing too um, is to note just Hannah, or sorry, Anna, and her faithfulness. Because uh, Luke goes on to tell us that she never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption or the consolation of Israel, or sorry, of Jerusalem. And so we get this picture of Anna as this faithful woman who recognizes Jesus. I mean, she basically lives at the temple, fasting and praying day in, day out. And so she's this faithful woman who recognizes Jesus and she praises God for him. And then she starts telling everybody who will listen that she has seen the Lord's salvation. She has seen the one who has come. And then this end scene. It says, When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, again, there's following the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So the story sort of closes. This is the chapter closing. Uh, Joseph and Mary, they come to Bethlehem from Nazareth, and now the chapter closes with them going from, from Jerusalem back to Nazareth. Uh, and so the, this story kind of holds together. And I was thinking about this, about this for us this week, about, you know, okay, Jason, we, we've heard the good news again. We see uh, Simeon and Anna and the things that they say, um, but how does this fit with our lives? What does this mean for us? I mean, how do we take this whole passage and apply it to our lives? Well, first, I think the thing for us to notice here um, is to realize that we, um, we have this amazing God. And I was talking some about it um, a couple weeks ago with this um, living your faith. If you remember uh, this image from that sermon series, these, these dirty hands, these hands that get into the dirt of life, this incarnational way of living. And I was realizing this week again as I was studying this passage that we have a God who loves us, who became human to save us, who set aside all the privileges, all the good things that come with being God. He set them aside so he could put on flesh and become not a king in a castle, but a child in a manger, a child of poor parents in a manger. This is the kind of love that God has for us. And it talks about it too. Uh, The writer of Hebrews talks about how Jesus, because he became human, he knew what it was like to be human. He experienced suffering and pain and loss. He knew what it was like to lose a a, a dear friend like Lazarus and to weep. He knew what it was like to look at the city he loved, Jerusalem, and weep. Jesus knew joy. He knew hunger. I mean, he was uh, out in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water. He knew what it was like to go without. So Jesus is not just this God up in the sky somewhere 
who has no idea what it's like to be human. He actually became human with us and knows all about it. And it's this God, this God who loves us so much that he would sacrifice to save us. Not only sacrifice in setting aside his divinity to become human, but then he would sacrifice as he grew older when he was fully a man and uh, sacrificed everything, even death on a cross for us that we might be saved. And I started thinking about this and how Jesus provides an example for us. Actually, example is the wrong word because it can almost imply like an unreachable example. But it's actually Jesus provides a model for us, a way to live. That we, too, are meant to enter into the life around us, into life of friends and neighbors who aren't followers of Jesus yet, to enter into their lives, to get to know them. Because it's, it's really easy to judge people that you don't really know. It's easy to judge people that you don't understand, that you have no idea what it's like in their life. And so Jesus became human like us, and so gives us our model, our example, that we enter into the lives of our friends and neighbors as well. That we sacrifice for the sake of our community, for our friends and neighbors around us. And we do the hard work of just showing up at events when it's time to help our community. And I realize that this costs time and money and effort. I realize it. But this is the sort of God that we have who models this for us, that we would then go do it as well. It can be something as just as simple as going for a walk. And I think about those of you who live in Lakeshore Place, like you have a great place to go for a walk and bless your neighbors, to just chat and to just talk with them. It's interesting because um, this week, uh, like I mentioned, I took our car to get an oil change. And so I dropped it at Balfour Auto. And I do that a bit on purpose. One because, it's, uh, one, because I think they do great work, but also two, because they're in our community. So I go there on purpose. And so I drop the car off, and then I begin walking, because I still have stuff to do Friday morning. Stuff to do with the church here. I wanted to go to the gym. So on my way up, I'm walking up the hill, and I see Wendy. And she's uh, walking uh, her dog, and had just dropped off Sarah at Rick and Judy's place. So I get a chance to talk with Wendy for a moment. Then I come up to the church, do some of my stuff up here, get stuff ready for this morning. And then I start walking to the gym, just the Balfour Schoolhouse. And as I'm walking, I see uh, Jess McLeod, Wendy's friend. She's walking her dog, or her dog is walking her. It's kind of hard to tell which is which. But I got a chance to ask her how her Christmas was going and how she's been. And then I'm at the gym, and I'm working out, and uh, my son Corbin, his fifth grade teacher, Sarah, her husband Chris, shows up at the gym. First time uh, that I've seen him there, so I get a chance to talk with him and, and meet him. And then I'm on my way back to go pick up our car. I stop at the, at the post office, and I talk with Ellen, our postmaster, ask how her Christmas has been, talk some about like, how, it was, how it was for us and our family, and then, and then leave her with intentionally saying, bless you, Merry Christmas, even though I know it's the 28th, um, to, to, um, so that she might too think, oh, well, nobody's talking about. And as I'm coming out, um, I see Shayla, uh, a lady who works on the ferry, and get to talk with her and wish her a Merry Christmas as well. Then I go down to the Balfour Auto, and you, I'm surprised on a Friday, uh, the week after or the week of Christmas, that um, the place is filled. And so I see a bunch of my neighbors there, plus uh, Mike and Julie Petch, who run the place. 
and talking with them about their Christmas. I mean, probably for like 15, 20 minutes, like six of us in this room just chatting and talking. You know, you think like, Jason, where are you going with this? <laughs> My point is, this is what incarnational or incarnated life looks like. Because so much of the time, I drive my truck here, I get out, I go in the church, and when I go somewhere, I get in my truck and I drive somewhere else. If I see people, if I see them, I just shoot them a quick wave and I whiz right by. Incarnation, entering into people's life, takes time and effort and sacrifice. And yet this is how Jesus entered into our lives. I mean, it would have been way easier immensely easier for God to just drop a Bible from heaven and hope we figure it out. Or to drop leaflets and wave as he whizzed by. But God slowed down and came into our lives, into humanity, to show us what God was like, to show us how to live and follow God, and most of all, to save us, to give us hope of a new life. And so this morning, as we're thinking about this story, you know, whether it's, whether it's we admire Jesus' family, Mary and Joseph, for their faithfulness and how faithfully they followed God, or whether we're joining in with, with Simeon and Anna and continuing to praise God, which I encourage all of you to do, at very least until January 6th, um, to keep praising God because Christmas is not over because God took on flesh and lived among us. He showed us what God was like. Or if it's even this, if it's following Jesus, if it's following him and and living the way that he modeled for us by going for walks in our community on purpose so that we can stop and take time with people. I was thinking about it this week, or I actually was realizing it, that these things matter. And some of you might be thinking, you know, Jason, you talk with like six people, like really, what's the benefit of that? I am convinced. I am convinced that it is cumulative. And what I mean by that is, year after year, these conversations matter in people's lives. Just one example. So, um, the week before Christmas, when everybody else, like when everything else is busy, my kids have their Christmas program. And so I went to it. Uh, You know, and I'm thinking, oh, you know, great, it's good to see them. I'm mostly there for my kids, but... I see people from our community too and I, I talk with them and I encourage them. And it's on the way out <clears throat> that uh, one of our friends, Shelly, she stops me and she says, hey Jason, I just, I, I meant to, to email this to you and to, just let you know, but I just, you're here now so I want to tell you how meaningful it was, how much I appreciated what you said at the Remembrance Day service at the Cenotaph. She said, my kids even listened to it and she said they went like three weeks without arguing. And they've since taken it up again, but, but still, what you said mattered. And I realized that the things that we do, they might seem small to us. Maybe it's just a conversation and a Merry Christmas, or maybe it's a two-hour conversation as we listen to someone and pray with them. These things are cumulative in people's lives. This is what incarnational life looks like. And there are things that we won't know until we stand before Jesus and he shows us, like, here's the thing that you thought was meaningless or, or you weren't sure whatever happened to that seed. Here's how it grew and produced fruit. Jesus is our example. 
He is God who has entered into our life. And so this morning, I want you to praise God for that, to celebrate that, and to follow his example, to enter into the life of our community as well. Bless you, and I mean this on purpose. Merry Christmas as we continue to celebrate. Amen.